This episode contains graphic descriptions of abuse, violence, medical afflictions, and treatments that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. On December 10, 1949, the Swedish royal family entered the Stockholm Concert Hall. They were followed by the keenest minds in chemistry, medicine, and physics. The audience was on the edge of their seats, anxious to see who'd win the Nobel Prize. But to their surprise, this year's award in medicine was split between not one, but two men. Walter Hess, for his discovery on the interbrain's connection to bodily functions, and Portuguese neurologist Antonio Egas Moniz, for his groundbreaking mental health treatment. A representative of the Nobel Committee said Moniz's new procedure was, despite certain limitations, one of the most important discoveries ever made in psychiatric therapy, because through its use, a great number of suffering people and total invalids have recovered and have been socially rehabilitated. For the next two decades, physicians around the globe treated thousands of patients with Moniz's procedure. Their hope was to cure afflictions like schizophrenia, depression, and bipolar disorder. Instead, his miracle treatment would leave thousands of patients disabled, emotionally scarred, and irreversibly damaged. That night, the greatest scientists of the time applauded Moniz. They had no idea his procedure would come to be known as one of medicine's greatest mistakes. The prefrontal lobotomy. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. Next week, in Part 2, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first episode on the lobotomy, a now mostly obsolete neurosurgical treatment for mental health conditions. Today, we'll explore the genesis of the prefrontal lobotomy and try to understand why it was so widely accepted despite its flaws. Next week, we'll examine the evolution of the procedure into the ice pick lobotomy, and we'll find out why the world finally turned against it. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. 
Today, the word lobotomy conjures visions of a fate worse than death, a sadistic procedure that robs humans of emotion and free will. Serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer famously performed homemade lobotomies on his victims, hoping to make them easier to control. However, in the 20th century, the lobotomy was not the work of serial killers, but of distinguished doctors and psychiatrists. Novels like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and films like Shutter Island depict how lobotomies were inflicted on many patients. The surgeons seem like mad scientists, immoral monsters, but were they? From 1935 to 1960, the lobotomy wasn't just another outdated treatment for mental health conditions. It was considered one of the most humane options available, dominating the mental health field. Some even refer to it as lobotomania. In the 1900s, mental health care was primarily controlled by the state asylum system. It's estimated that in 1937 alone, over 450,000 Americans were packed into only 477 facilities. And half of these patients were confined for five years or more. Patients suffering from schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, and other afflictions were admitted by the state or by family into these government-run institutions. Some patients were committed against their will or without a mental health condition at all. Doctors and hospital administrators were faced with quickly overcrowding facilities and limited access to real treatment options like psychotherapy and psychopharmaceuticals. They reasoned that if they discovered a permanent solution for these conditions, many of these patients would be able to return home to a normal life, or at least they would be easier to manage and control. In order to find that miracle treatment, they needed to understand the cause of these mental health conditions and how the brain controlled behavior and personality. One of their first dramatic breakthroughs didn't come from careful study, but a brutal workplace accident. In 1848, Phineas Gage was a 25-year-old railroad worker living in Cavendish, Vermont. His job was to drill holes into the rock and fill it with explosives to lay new tracks. One day, Gage was going about his usual duties. He placed the powder and a fuse in one hole and packed it with sand and clay to direct the blast. Then, he used a dense piece of metal, called a tamping iron, to compact it before he prepared for detonation. But for a split second, Gage became distracted by the men behind him. His tamping iron hit a stone and sparked. The powder ignited. The force of the explosion blasted the three-foot tampering iron through Gage's cheek and out the top of his skull, just above his left eye. Gage collapsed as the 13-pound bar landed some 80 feet away, covered in blood and brain matter. His co-workers yelled for a doctor. They ran to what they assumed was Gage's corpse. But to their surprise, Gage was still alive. And he was conscious. When the local physician, Dr. John Martin Harlow, arrived, he was astounded to find Gage sitting up and talking. At first, Dr. Harlow didn't believe there had been an accident at all. But a quick examination of Gage's head proved otherwise. The wound was so large, Dr. Harlow could see Gage's brain tissue. 
The iron bar had pierced through his frontal lobe, but it had left structures like the brainstem, which controls breathing, walking, and talking, totally intact. Gage eventually healed, but his friends and co-workers noticed their old friend wasn't quite the man he used to be. He had a shorter attention span, his intelligence didn't seem quite as high, and he was more irritable and impulsive than anyone had ever seen him. Gage's superiors at the railroad refused to rehire him because of the change. His friends described him as fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity. He was no longer Gage. Because of the damage to Gage's frontal lobes, or more specifically, his prefrontal cortex, Dr. Harlow realized that this part of the brain must play a role in personality and emotion. The prefrontal cortex is located in the forehead, just above our eye sockets. It controls higher cognition, like abstract thinking, decision-making, speech, and language. Dr. Harlow used Gage's case to support two theories. First, that trauma to this area could fundamentally change a person's behavior. And second, that it was possible to damage this part of the brain without impacting basic human functions like breathing or talking. Dr. Harlow's work encouraged other psychiatrists and neurologists to focus on the prefrontal cortex, and they used his discovery with Gage to better understand and treat a variety of mental health conditions. But some of these early experiments were more butchery than surgery. In 1888, psychiatrist Gottlieb Burkhardt was working in a small asylum in Switzerland. He found that several of his patients with schizophrenia were violent and prone to hallucinations. Some of them even attacked his staff. The prevailing theory at the time was that these patients needed to be shocked back to health, almost like rebooting a computer. And the most common treatments were insulin, metrazole, and electroconvulsive therapy. Patients injected with insulin were left in comas for days or even weeks, only to show the same symptoms once they awoke. Metrazole was another injected drug that inevitably caused seizures, as well as a sense of impending doom in its subjects. And while electroconvulsive therapy is still used today, albeit under general anesthetic, to treat various disorders and symptoms, Asylums at the time used it on just about anyone, regardless of whether they saw improvement. None of Burkhardt's patients showed a significant response to any of these treatments. And Burkhardt wanted something that would get people out of hospitals quicker. Not to mention, something that could make them easier to handle, less of a burden on staff. Which is why he decided to create a treatment of his own. Burkhardt's specialty was neuroanatomy, meaning he studied the structure and organization of the human nervous system. He reasoned that every human behavior was assigned to a particular region of the brain. Burkhardt believed the brain could have blockages in one of these areas, essentially clogging the connection between the senses and the mind. He reasoned that this was ultimately the cause of mental health conditions. But perhaps they could be fixed with surgery. The brain is made up of four main lobes. The temporal lobe, primarily involved in auditory perception and dissecting what we hear. 
the parietal lobe, which processes touch, taste, and temperature, the frontal lobe, which we mentioned processes cognitive thinking, like problem-solving and memory, and finally, the occipital lobe, which processes our visuals. Burkhardt focused on the left temporoparietal junction, the part of the brain that connects both the temporal and the parietal lobes. This part of the brain gauges social cognition. Essentially, this is where we process and store the information we receive and make about other people. It also dictates how we perceive social situations, and it helps us decipher if the actions and thoughts of others are right or wrong. It also acts as a sort of way station where information is transported, processed, and relayed between the other two lobes. Burkhardt believed there were blockages that happened in the left temporoparietal junction of the brain that kept information from being relayed accurately, if at all. He also felt that this was what caused symptoms like paranoia and hallucinations. Since this part of the brain translated external information from the outside world, it made sense that someone's reality could become distorted, causing delusional symptoms. Given the scientific knowledge of his day, Burkhardt's conclusions seemed to make sense, and he believed the only way to actually find out was by drilling holes and looking directly into the brain. Except Burkhardt was a psychiatrist. He had zero surgical training. Still, that didn't stop him from operating on six different unconsenting patients at his asylum. He sawed open their skulls and cut out large portions of tissue from their brain, about 10 grams worth, roughly the weight of a ballpoint pen. And Burkhardt didn't just perform one surgery per person. He performed several on each subject. Each time, he removed more and more of a patient's brain tissue until he achieved his desired result. Quiet and controllable patients. Out of Burkhardt's six subjects, one died from the experiments. Another slightly improved, but later committed suicide. Two showed no changes at all, and the remaining two did become quieter and more manageable for asylum staff. Burkhardt claimed that one patient, quote, had changed from a dangerous and excited demented person to a calm demented one. To Burkhardt, this was a vast improvement. Thankfully, the medical community didn't share his enthusiasm. When he presented his results to the Berlin Medical Congress of 1889, his peers reacted with shock and outrage. Burkhardt's experiments were denounced as highly disturbing and grossly ineffective. He was ostracized by other psychiatrists and physicians. Yet Burkhardt was unapologetic about his actions. In his mind, he'd eased his patients' suffering and he'd prevented some of those patients from attacking his staff. Burkhardt claimed, Doctors are different by nature. One kind adheres to the old principle, first, do no harm. The other one says, it's better to do something than do nothing. I certainly belong to the second category. Nonetheless, Burkhardt retired into obscurity. It appeared as if that would be the end of psychosurgery. However, one Portuguese neurologist, Agos Moniz, would pick up right where Burkhardt left off and his spin on the procedure would be adapted by doctors across the globe. Up next, 
Two chimpanzees change the landscape of psychosurgery. Hey, Parcasters. Looking for a more lighthearted listen? Then I've got the perfect podcast for you. The new Spotify original from Parcast called Incredible Feats. Hosted by comedian and podcaster Dan Cummins, Incredible Feats is a daily show spotlighting true accounts of mind-blowing physical strength, mental focus, and bizarre behavior. Join Dan every weekday as he goes behind the scenes and into the achievements of everyone from freedivers and body modifiers to ultramarathoners and moms. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. In the late 1800s, psychiatrist Dr. Gottlieb Burkhardt surgically removed brain tissue from several of his patients. He believed his treatment would prevent many of the symptoms caused by mental health conditions. But mostly, he wanted to make his patients more docile and easier to control. Most of Burkhardt's peers were horrified, but there were others who saw merit in his barbaric techniques. In 1935, the International Congress of Neurology featured two important guests, a pair of chimpanzees named Becky and Lucy. Yale physiologists had removed the primates' frontal lobes entirely, then studied their behavior. The once stubborn and aggressive monkeys were now cooperative and docile. They didn't get frustrated when they failed simple tasks. This experiment inspired a man named Antonio Egas Moniz. He was a neurologist from Lisbon, Portugal, who was already well-respected in his field. In the late 1920s, Moniz developed a method which x-rayed the brain using soluble dyes. This formed the basis of cerebral angiography, a diagnostic image that helped doctors pinpoint dangerous blockages in the blood vessels leading to the brain or the neck. It helped them identify early threats of a stroke, aneurysm, or tumors. In fact, Moniz's cerebral angiography is still used by doctors today. Moniz was inspired by his own success, and by the 1930s, he had turned this focus to new frontiers, namely mental health. He believed most disorders were caused by abnormal neural circuits that connected the prefrontal cortex to the thalamus. The thalamus is a part of the brain's limbic system, the foundation of our emotional responses and memory. It gathers sensory information and packages it with emotions like fear, love, anger, and disgust. Then, it conveys these emotions to the conscious mind. This is where our emotional triggers lie. If a song on the radio conjures up memories of an ex-lover causing you to feel sad and frustrated, you can thank your limbic system. Moniz believed that faulty connections between our thalamus and prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain responsible for decision-making, can lead to symptoms like anxiety, hallucinations, depression, and a variety of other conditions. Essentially, he blamed the problems on a bad connection between someone's emotional and decision-making parts of the brain. Moniz then theorized that if the tissue connecting the thalamus and the prefrontal cortex were severed, the body could create new, healthier connections. 
and his patients could be cured. So Moniz designed a procedure called a leucotomy. It would sever specific neural connections while leaving the rest of the brain intact. In November of 1935, Moniz recruited his first patient, a 63-year-old woman at Santa Maria Hospital in Lisbon. She suffered from depression, anxiety, paranoia, hallucinations, and insomnia. But Moniz believed the leucotomy could free her from all of those afflictions. Like Burkhardt, Moniz had no formal surgical training. So he enlisted the help of a longtime collaborator and neurosurgeon, Dr. Pedro Almeida Lima. Together, they would perform Moniz's leucotomy. First, the patient went under general anesthesia, rendering her unconscious. Then Dr. Lima made incisions on her scalp to expose her skull before drilling small holes to expose the brain. The doctors injected a solution of alcohol into the patient's frontal lobes where the thalamus and prefrontal cortex connected. This alcohol permanently destroyed the connection, which Moniz thought to be the source of her neuroses. Then they stitched the patient's incisions and waited for her brain to regrow healthy connections. Two months after the procedure, an independent psychiatrist assessed the woman's condition. He claimed, The patient's anxiety and restlessness had declined rapidly with a marked decrease of paranoid features. By all appearances, Moniz's procedure was a success. Over the next few months, Moniz and Lima performed leucotomies on 20 other patients, each with equally promising results. But Moniz reevaluated his methods when he found the alcohol injections were imprecise. They sometimes spread to other parts of the brain without his control. So Moniz designed a new instrument called a leucotome. This was a long, needle-like device with a retractable wire loop, almost like a dog catcher's noose. The leucotome could cut tissue with great precision and it proved to be far more effective than the unpredictable alcohol injections. After a few months, Moniz had enough data to present his procedure to the world. According to him, 70% of his patients were either completely healed or showed significant decline in their symptoms. 30% were in the same state they were before the procedure. But so far, not a single patient had worsened or died. Even those who doubted his methods were unable to dispute its results. A mental health treatment with a 70% success rate was unheard of and extremely compelling. Moniz was hailed as a visionary. Yet 40 years prior, Burkhardt had been made a social pariah for presenting an almost identical idea. But that didn't seem to matter to most physicians who embraced Moniz's theory. All over the world, doctors started performing leucotomies, and it would slowly adapt the new, more infamous moniker, the lobotomy. The general public also added to the hype surrounding Moniz's procedure. In 1937, the New York Times dubbed the lobotomy the surgery of the soul. The article claimed that a lobotomy improved 65% of patients who were otherwise untreatable. It seemed that mental health conditions would soon be a thing of the past. By the 1940s, lobotomania had arrived, 
and the numbers of patients who endured the surgery were staggering. Over the next two decades, England would lobotomize 17,000 patients. Denmark, 3,500, and Norway, 2,500. Yet no country performed more lobotomies than the United States. By the 1960s, around 50,000 Americans had undergone Moniz's procedure. In the meantime, Moniz's invention took him all the way to Stockholm, Sweden in 1949, where he was awarded the Nobel Prize. But in the background, there was vocal criticism over Moniz's barbaric treatment. Many believed the results were too good to be true. One of these critics was American psychiatrist William White. In a letter to a colleague, he said, I could express the whole matter in one word, but I do not want to do that because it would be unmailable. But you naturally know my disinclination to consider the destruction of the brain as legitimate therapy. Meaning, White felt you couldn't treat the brain simply by destroying it. Like many of Lobotomy's critics, White was a psychoanalyst. He believed mental health conditions could be better treated through investigating the subconscious. Psychoanalysts like White believed mental health conditions came from a disconnect between the conscious and unconscious mind. If the mind is our body's computer, they saw mental health symptoms as evidence of a software problem, whereas neurologists felt these were hardware problems. As for the apparent success of lobotomies, Dr. Roy Richard Grinker, a psychiatrist and neurologist who trained with Sigmund Freud in Vienna, had one suggestion. He believed that the surgical procedure had nothing to do with the patient's improvement. It was the rehabilitation afterwards that was effective. Patients who underwent a lobotomy were assigned a nurse and given plenty of one-on-one -on -one attention. Grinker suggested that these aspects alleviated a patient's symptoms more than anything else. For a while, the psychological and neurological opinions were at odds. But in 1938, lobotomist Kurt Goldstein combined the two approaches. Instead of choosing between psychosurgery and psychoanalysis, Goldstein felt patients should receive both. This two-pronged approach became increasingly common in psychiatric treatment. But lobotomists still had something psychoanalysts didn't. Their data showed drastic changes in behavior after a lobotomy, whereas psychoanalysts had very little proof of a patient's improvement. Their process was much slower and less convincing, especially to a society that trusted definitive results. In some countries, lobotomy critics prevailed. Germany performed very few lobotomies on its citizens, and in 1953, the Soviet Union made lobotomies illegal, calling the operation inhumane. But it's unclear whether the Soviets objected to the procedure itself or simply its origins. At the dawn of the Cold War, they were resistant to anything from Western Europe. Many critics did not object to the procedure itself, but the way that it was being portrayed in the media as a miracle cure. They believed Moniz had exaggerated the positive effects of his operation. Yet there were never any long-term studies with a significant sample size to determine the lasting effects. 
Many doctors would perform the procedure and send patients on their way, hoping to stop the increase in asylum populations. They simply didn't follow up with those patients to find out that the outcome was in fact horrifying. Even the most, quote, successful operations left permanent damage. And the unsuccessful ones shattered people's lives. Coming up, we'll examine the heartbreaking consequences of the lobotomy. Now, back to the story. 20th century physicians believed they discovered a permanent cure to mental health conditions, the prefrontal lobotomy. But as more patients received the procedure, evidence mounted that this miracle cure wasn't a cure at all. In the classic 1962 novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, protagonist Randall McMurphy is lobotomized. The charismatic brawler is rendered catatonic. A lobotomist of the 1930s or 40s might argue that McMurphy's condition was a regrettable tragedy, yet far from the norm. In their eyes, patients left the operating table and returned to be functioning members of society, cured of whatever affliction had plagued them. But just because a patient was sent home didn't mean their mental health condition was cured. Based on the most optimistic studies of the time, only one-third of lobotomy patients improved. Another third showed no change after the operation, and one-third deteriorated. On the one hand, it's easy to see why those odds may have been convincing back in the 20th century, especially if the alternative was being confined to an asylum. This was why so many patients and their loved ones sought out the treatment. Still, it was hard to even pinpoint what counted as improvement. For physicians, the priority was getting the patient out of the asylum and back to work. They considered the operation a success if the patient displayed fewer signs of their mental health condition. Patients were judged merely on how they acted, not how they felt. For instance, if a schizophrenic patient stopped reacting to their hallucinations, they'd be considered cured. But that didn't mean their hallucinations were gone. Many patients still experienced symptoms after their surgery. All that changed was how they reacted to them and whether anyone else was aware of their suffering. After a lobotomy, the pathways in a patient's brain were destroyed. They were no longer capable of feeling or acting out on the hallucinations or anxieties that still plagued them. In fact, Lobotomies kept some patients from feeling any emotions. It wasn't just fear or anxiety that went away. The operation also eradicated happiness, excitement, and love. Psychosurgeons called this devastating effect bleaching the ego. By the late 1940s, it was growing apparent that the lobotomy dulled a patient's sense of self. They lacked awareness control, motivation, and respect for social norms. During recovery, many patients regressed through what was called a second childhood. Patients who had received a lobotomy now had very short attention spans. Nurses had to reteach them how to concentrate on small tasks like brushing their teeth or using the restroom. Subjects also found themselves disoriented, not knowing why their head was bandaged why they were in the hospital. 
Some patients didn't remember having the surgery at all. Another major post-operative problem for lobotomy patients was inertia. They sat for hours, lacking the motivation to move or perform tasks. And if nurses tried to force them, people grew violent. Many also lacked impulse control. They were unable to manage how much they ate, even snatching food out of their caretaker's hands. It was common to gain up to 70 pounds after a lobotomy. This phase of childhood regression was so severe that physicians actually recommended spanking patients to discipline them, the same way a parent would a child. Nurses and family members had to walk patients through simple tasks over and over to get them back into old habits. This type of therapy is known as occupational therapy, and it helped patients regain most of their normal function and return to work one year after their operation. But the emotional dissonance remained. One neurologist stated that every patient probably loses something by this operation, some spontaneity, some sparkle, some flavor of the personality. Unfortunately, this sacrifice was seen as a regrettable yet necessary side effect of the treatment. While in actuality, none of these patients were cured of their mental health condition. The damage to a patient's brain only made their conditions less pronounced to observers, not to themselves. Around 30% of lobotomy patients were left permanently damaged by their surgery. Two famous cases in particular illustrate how devastating this procedure could be. The lobotomies of Henry Molaison and Rosemary Kennedy. Henry Molaison developed a severe case of epilepsy after a childhood bicycle accident at age seven. Unlike some mental health conditions, epilepsy is a neurological disorder that is caused by abnormal circuits in the brain. Normally, electrical impulses travel down a line of neurons in sequence. This is how information is transmitted from one place to another. But during an epileptic seizure, those neurons all fire at once. This results in violent muscle spasms, unconsciousness, and memory loss. Epilepsy can be caused by brain trauma, like a bicycle accident. However, nearly 80% of epilepsy cases are related to genetic factors, and seizures can range from rare and mild to severe and frequent, like Henry's. Today, people suffering from epilepsy can take anti-seizure medication to ease their symptoms. But before the 1950s, there was practically no treatment. Henry's seizures made a normal life impossible. In 1953, at age 27, his family was told that a lobotomy could help manage his symptoms. They agreed, and a prominent lobotomist named Dr. William Scoville performed Henry's surgery. Except Dr. Scoville had his own modified version of the lobotomy. Instead of clipping Henry's thalamus, Scoville destroyed parts of the hippocampus. And since Henry's epilepsy was severe, Scoville believed it was necessary to remove this entire part of the brain. The hippocampus is another part of the limbic system, the emotional region of our brain. It also plays a role in consolidating short-term, long-term, and spatial memories. Since seizures can be the result of overactive neural circuits, 
destroying Henry's hippocampus did reduce the frequency of those seizures. However, his lobotomy had other devastating effects. Henry was able to remember his past, but he couldn't retain any new information for longer than a few minutes, which meant he was unable to build any new memories. And while Henry's family sincerely believed the lobotomy could help their son, there were some people that inflicted it upon family members as a means of control. Rosemary Kennedy was the younger sister of President John F. Kennedy. During birth, Rosemary experienced a prolonged period of hypoxia, or lack of oxygen, which led to a series of lifelong problems. Early in life, Rosemary exhibited developmental difficulties and violent convulsions. She had trouble learning how to read and write, and she would have fits of rage, sometimes injuring others. Rosemary was also very rebellious, especially for the era and her social class. At night, she would sneak out of the convent school she was sent to. The nuns believed she was having affairs with strange men, and they feared she would contract a sexually transmitted disease. On top of that, Rosemary's father feared her behavior would cause problems for her brother's political ambitions. So, in order to protect the family reputation, Rosemary's father arranged for her to receive a lobotomy when she turned 23. Because she had been diagnosed with, quote, mental retardation, only her father's consent was required for the procedure. Rosemary had no knowledge until after the fact. Technically, Rosemary's lobotomy was performed by the book, but it left her severely disabled. Once fiercely independent and filled with life, she was rendered nearly catatonic and unable to care for herself. She spent the rest of her life hidden away in an assisted living facility. Sadly, Rosemary's case was not unique. In the 1940s and 50s, women were disproportionately given lobotomies. In some medical practices, nearly 75% of patients who received the operation were women. This is despite the fact that the majority of patients in asylums were men. Women in Rosemary's time were expected to be calm, cooperative, and submissive. Common human emotions were hardly condoned, which meant symptoms of mental health conditions such as anxiety, depression, or neuroticism simply weren't tolerated. As such, women were often coerced into receiving lobotomies by their fathers or husbands. Men who feared these women would become an embarrassment to their family. And like Rosemary, many had no say or prior knowledge. By the early 1950s, the lobotomy was also facing logistical obstacles. Moniz had hoped his procedure would ease the burden of crowded asylums, but it was proving too expensive and time-consuming to be used on everyone. Each procedure cost hundreds of dollars and required anesthesia, an operating room, a neurologist, and a neurosurgeon. Patient recovery often took weeks, if not months, requiring more nurses and resources. And if the patient didn't seem to respond to treatment, they were often required to go through the entire process again. By 1951, the number of lobotomies was falling and critics were growing louder. It seemed as if the method would fade into history. But in America, 
one of Moniz's most fervent supporters was just getting started. American neurologist Dr. Walter Freeman had latched onto Moniz's idea back in the 1930s. He became one of the world's most vocal lobotomy advocates. He and his partner, a neurosurgeon named James Watts, performed thousands of lobotomies, and they advocated for the procedure in the press and the halls of Capitol Hill. Most importantly, Freeman realized the procedure needed to be simpler, more accessible. In fact, he believed he could remove surgeons from the equation entirely. Under Freeman's guidance, the lobotomy would become a simple procedure, one that didn't even require a medical degree. He began by targeting people with mild mental health conditions, recommending lobotomies to patients as young as 12 years old. All he needed was a few apathetic nurses and some ice picks to bring lobotomania to life once more. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. We'll be back next week with part two of Lobotomies, where we'll discover its most recent history. For more information, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Lobotomist by Jack L. High extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Evan McKay with writing assistance by Ali Wicker and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Listeners, you don't want to miss Incredible Feats, the all-new Spotify original from Parcast. Host Dan Cummins free-falls straight into the weirdest, wildest achievements of all time. New episodes air every weekday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.